Amen. You can have a seat. As you grab a seat, go ahead and grab your Bible. If you're watching online or here in the room, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, If you've been with us for a few weeks, what we've been trying to do is work through the back few chapters of the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, 12, and 13. Um, This week will be our second to last week. We will wrap up the book of Hebrews next week. The following week will be Easter weekend, which is the biggest weekend of the year for churches, okay? This is it. This is the Super Bowl. This is everything. Jesus is alive. If he's not alive, we all go home, amen? So this is coming up. Easter's coming up. I want you to join us. We'll be here Thursday night. There'll be a good Friday service. There'll be Easter weekend services. Big weekend coming up on Easter. Tonight, what I want to remind us of is sort of what the book of Hebrews is built around. But we just sang that song, and really that song, if you missed it, uh, and sometimes you can get caught up in just like arms high, heart abandoned, like what an amazing like anthem for your life. But, but don't miss that that entire song is just telling the story of the gospel. Like before creation was even spoken into existence, God saw you, he knew you, he knew what would happen, he knew he'd have to send his son, Jesus, to bear the burden, to carry his cross for your sin and for your shame. And the entire book of Hebrews, really up until the later chapters, is just laying out the truth of what Jesus has done for you. He died on the cross for your sin, he came to rescue you. If you're here tonight, if you're listening online on our stream tonight, and you don't know that Jesus loves you enough to die for you, to give his life for your salvation, that's the message of the church. And everything that we're reading about tonight and everything we're looking at in the book of Hebrews at the end here, is sort of because of the cross of Jesus Christ, now what? How do we live? How do we act? How do we behave? How do we most importantly respond to the grace that was offered to us through Christ? And we're going to see that tonight in Hebrews chapter 13. We got some ground to cover, so I want to jump right in. Again, if you have your Bible, I want you to have that open. Always want you to know I'm not making this up, coming up with this in my mind. This is right from God's word, and I want you to see that it'll be here on the screen as well. Hebrews chapter 13. We'll start in verse 9 tonight. It says this, do not be carried away with all kinds of strange teachings. So the command here is that we're not going to get carried away. We're not going to get swept away. We're not going to get caught up in something. And the something that he wants you to have on your mind are these strange teachings that are going to be present in this world. Strange teachings. Now, the author of Hebrews here is going to put before us that one of the most important things for us to think about when it comes to being a follower of Jesus is that we would have our mind and we would have our eyes locked on the strange teachings of this world in such a way that we do not get carried away with them. Now, why is this a big deal? Why does the author of Hebrews seem to think that teachings, these strange teachings that are floating about in the world, seem to have an impact on your life and my faith and our world? And here's the answer to that question. The answer to that question is what we said a few weeks ago. If you were here, you heard these three words over and over and over again. It's that ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. And what these ideas do, when ideas start to really manifest themselves in the life of a human being, they start to have consequences. And it's so wild that the author of Hebrews 2,000 years ago is going to say, don't get carried away by these strange teachings. And he has no idea what's going to happen next in human history. Uh, Just a brief overview of human history will show you that when strange teachings start to take root in the lives of human beings, terrible, unconscionable things begin to happen. Uh, Let me just give you a brief overview of history when it comes to these strange teachings. I want to show this here. So strange teachings throughout history. Let let me just show you a few in different centuries. The 12th century Inquisition. If you don't know what the Inquisition was, it was the church the Catholic Church specifically, that decided that here was the idea, the strange teaching they bought into. 
it's okay to murder and kill and torture someone as long as they're a heretic. That's the strange teaching. That's the idea that got into their mind and that idea had consequences and that idea scarred the church for centuries to come and destroyed the lives of people who believed something slightly different than what the church believed at the time. 17th century slavery. Slavery is something that's happened all throughout human history. It is a scar on human history to be sure. But in the 17th century, the idea was this. It's okay to enslave someone and make them work for you and to treat them as less than human as long as their skin is a different color than yours. Strange teachings have disastrous results. 20th century Nazism. Most of us are familiar with the horrors of Nazism. We understand what happened there. But where did that come from? It came from an idea. It came from a thought. It came from a pattern of thinking, a strange teaching that said it's okay for our race to do whatever it takes to secure our future, including exterminating other groups of people and going to war with the world. And finally, 20th century communism. It starts with the strange teaching. It starts with the idea that if everything would be equal and if everything can be equal between everyone else and the classes can be equal, then that's okay. And then here's where it got strange. The idea that it doesn't matter what it takes to get to utopia will do it. And it ultimately becomes the greatest genocide the world has ever seen of 20th century communism. So, so here's what happens throughout history. 2,000 years ago, the author of the book of Hebrews says, beware of strange teachings. Be aware of the power that ideas have. And then all of human history has shown since that he was absolutely correct, correct and right in warning us to think about these strange teachings and these strange ideas that pop up in our world. But here's the danger. The danger is that you, sitting in a luxurious 21st century Western American culture, go, yes. There are strange teachings all throughout human history. And those people were backwards and silly and stupid. And how could they fall for anything like this? But you know what the problem is? The problem is that strange teachings are not limited to the past. There are strange teachings today. And tonight I want to talk to you about some of those strange teachings. Tonight I want to present some of those before you. Tonight, I want to say some of those things out loud so that you would understand how strange some of the things that float around our world and present themselves as truth are. I want to talk to you about those things. I want to talk to you with the full recognition that this part of the sermon's about to make some of you angry. In fact, I, 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 I'll specify it. I'm about to name five strange teachings. I think you will probably agree with four of them. You'll be like, yeah, that is wrong. Those people over there. And then you'll be like, oh, the second one, that's good too. The third, and then the fourth one, you'll just be, you know, like, that's it. But here's what I'm going to do. With everything I know of the scriptures, with everything I see in the world today, I'm going to try to present to you what I believe are the strange teachings, the ideas that are going to have consequences that float around our world today. I believe these ideas come from somewhere noble. They come from maybe even somewhere that, that has a good desire, but ultimately lead to disastrous results if you buy into them fully. If you do what the author of Hebrews says, if you get carried away by them. So I want to talk about these strange teachings. And if you're outraged and if you're angry, I want to encourage you not to be the type of person, if you're listening online, who hears something you don't like and turns off or be the type of person who hears something you don't like in church and then walks out. Be the person who leans in, who thinks about it. And if by the end of the service, you're certain I'm wrong, I'll stand right there in the lobby and you can come tell me. Amen. All right. Here's what we're going to do. Strange teachings today. Let's start with the first one. Christian nationalism. Now, I don't want you to mistake me here. I'm not talking about patriotism. 
Uh, I'm not talking about being a Christian who also loves your country. I won't speak for everyone here, but I will tell you very clearly, um, I love my country. I love the United States of America. I'm proud to be an American. I am grateful to live in this country. I don't wish to live anywhere else. My wife and I fly an American flag outside of our home every single day. But here's my problem. There are churches that take that American flag and wrap it so tightly around Jesus that I'm not sure which one they're worshiping anymore. And that's a problem. And I'm here to stand tonight and tell you that that kind of teaching that kind of blends America and Jesus together and puts them on the same level is idolatry and sin from the pit of hell. See, listen to me, I love my country, but I worship my God. And there's a brand of Christian nationalism out there. There is a brand out there that that tries to fuse these two things together in such a way that they were never meant to be put together. And listen, I'm not talking about the Christian who just loves their country and cares. I'm talking about something entirely different. When Jesus and the American project, the American flag, become indistinguishable from one another in church, it is a strange teaching. And that idea has consequences. And if those consequences play out, there are dark days ahead. Christian nationalism. Second one I want to talk to you tonight is this, secular progressivism. So see, listen, if you're sort of near Christian nationalism, you might consider yourself on the right, and maybe you think I'm picking on the right. I'm going to pick on the left, too. There's a secular progressive vision of the world that says we can leave behind God, we can leave behind his word, we can leave behind his precepts, and still achieve utopia. But the problem with this vision is that you saw off the very branch you're trying to sit on. You cannot say there's no God and we're all here randomly, just the products of evolution. There's nothing special about human beings, but also we'd like to have human rights. Those things don't fit together. If you abandon God, and listen to me, I'm not saying you can't be a moral person if you don't believe in God. I'm just saying you have no objective reason to be a moral person if you don't believe in God. Because there's nothing special about human beings if we're all just random accidents of a cosmic process. And secular progressivism tries to have ultimately what some would describe as the kingdom of God without the king. All the things that Christian faith can bring, but without the authority of God at the center. It's a strange teaching. And I wonder if for some of you, one of these has your heart. Maybe there's another one that could have your heart. It's a naturalistic materialism. Naturalistic materialism. It says everything in your life and everything in this world and everything in your body and everything you experience can be explained by science. There's no mystery. There's nothing outside of biological and physical processes happening in your world. So listen to me. According to this teaching, you've never been in love. It's just brain chemistry going on in your mind that makes you think you're in love so that you'll reproduce and have offspring. You've never actually experienced hope and you've never actually experienced joy. And there's no such thing as peace and there's no such thing as beauty. It's all just going on in your mind. So you see, this naturalistic philosophy of life just says there's nothing more than the stuff we have. There's nothing more than the stuff we exist in. And all things can be explained by this process. And there's no mystery. There's no spirit in this world. And it's a strange teaching. And that idea has consequences. And when you buy into that idea, I believe it does not lead to human flourishing. Next one I want to talk about tonight is this one. Critical theory. Critical theory is an academic idea that's been around for a little while here, but really has gotten popularized in the last 50, 60 years. The idea is based on two pillars. The two pillars are this. The first is that the right way to understand a human being is not by an individual, but rather by their identification within a group of men or women or skin color or nationality or race or tribe or culture. And then the second pillar that critical theory is built upon is that the principal way to understand every human relationship is through power. 
that that is the way to understand human relationships. And are there truths that it might be good for us to think about how groups interact? Absolutely. And am I affirming that power is a dynamic that's at play in the world? Absolutely. I'm just here tonight to say two things. Number one is, the Bible does not view the world the way critical theory views the world. The first is that the Bible is going to tell you that on judgment day, you're not going to stand in front of God with your group. You're going to stand as yourself. And the Bible says you will give an account for everything in your life. So the Bible is going to identify that the, th- the individual responsibility lays with you, not that your group is irrelevant, but that you will be judged based on what you have done. And then the second thing that the Bible is going to do is the Bible is going to suggest that power dynamics are at play in this world. And in fact, if you go read the Bible, you will probably see more power dynamics than you realize are there of oppressed and oppressor. And yet the Bible is also going to be convinced that the principal thing that drives this world is the glory of God and the love of Christ that love and hope and joy and peace are also dynamics in this world. So the Bible doesn't see the world the way critical theory does. But let me also say something, you don't either. Like you don't think your roommate situation, you live with a few people, a few gals through guys. You don't principally think of yourself as just always in a power dynamic. If you fall in love with someone, I've fallen in love with my wife, I don't constantly think about power dynamics in there. See, it's a thing you can think about when you really get down to it. It's not the way you want to see the world. It does not lead to human flourishing. It is not biblical. It's not that there's no truth in there. It's that it's not the principal way the Bible defines the world. And then the final one, I'll kind of speak to those of you who are Christians. It is a prosperity theology. Now, most of you probably know what prosperity theology is. If you don't, let me explain it. Prosperity theology fundamentally says that the primary aim of God in this world is to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. And so if you follow God and if you have enough faith and if you are a good enough Christian, God will make you happy. He'll give you a lot of money and he'll make you really healthy for a really long life. And listen to me, this is such a tempting theology because who in here doesn't want to be happy and healthy and have a lot of money? And yet I'm here to tell you that that is not even close to the way the Bible describes the world. Listen, child of God, the Bible does not promise you happiness, health, and wealth. It promises you one thing. It promises you suffering. That's what the Bible's going to promise you. That's what Jesus is going to promise you. And hear me on this. I actually know very few people. I do know a few people who like, actually say they are into prosperity theology. Most people don't say they're into this, but they live this way. And you live this way sometimes. If you get a raise... And you go, well, I probably got a raise because I've been such a good, faithful follower of Jesus recently, so he wants to reward me. That's prosperity theology. It's my behavior is what gets God to give me good stuff. And if I'm a really good boy and a really good girl, God will give me good stuff. But then if I sin, that's probably why I lost my job or hurt my knee or wrecked my car. It's prosperity theology. It's the idea that your behavior determines how God blesses you rather than his sovereign choices, his love, and his grace. And here's what I want to point out to you. There are probably hundreds more I could list here. These strange teachings that float along in our world. And if you want to be a serious follower of Jesus in the 21st century, your job is to identify these strange teachings that float around our culture today. You have to see them. You have to look for them. You can't just uncritically absorb what everyone's saying on your campus or on social media. You have to be the type of person who sees it, and here's why. Because if you aren't aware that the strange, there are strange teachings in our culture, you will get swept away in them. That's why the author of Hebrews says, don't get carried away. Don't get swept away. 
Don't be on campus and everyone's saying this thing. I know not everyone goes to school here, but some of you go to school. Campus culture can be so monolithic. Like everyone believes this thing and you just get caught up in it. Social media can do the same thing. Suddenly everyone's saying something and they're saying it in a certain way and you're not even sure if you believe it. You just get swept along in it. And here's what we're commanded to do. We're commanded to think about the strange teachings that exist in our world and at times... At times, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you have to have the courage to say, no, no, I'm not buying into that. I'm not giving into that. I know everyone in my circle, everyone at my school, everyone in my company, everyone in my family is saying this is true, but no. And that's what we as Christians have to have the courage to do, to stand our ground and say, I know this is going to make me uncomfortable. I know this is going to make me hated, but I'm not going along with something just because everyone else is buying into it. I will not. I will not, as a follower of Jesus, get caught up in these strange teachings. He's going to go on this way to describe a strange teaching that they're experiencing right now. He says this. He says it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. See, we have an altar, which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals to the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies there are burnt outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. Let us therefore go outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. All right, so if, if you're kind of tracking along with me and you're like, wait, what, what? Um, that's normal. I always try to say this. If you're ever reading the Bible and you're like, it said what? Wait, well, what? That makes you so wonderfully normal. You read the Bible and you see a paragraph like this and you have to start picking apart. But, but let me do this for you. Instead of trying to get through the whole thing, let me just point out five words. Five words here. I'm going to put ceremonial foods, altar, tabernacle, high priest, most holy place. Those are the five words that anchor that paragraph we just read. And here's what's being described. I want you to imagine the scenario with me. I want you to imagine you're living in the ancient city of Jerusalem. Everyone there is Jewish. Everyone there is following the laws of the Torah, is sacrificing in the temple, is working with the altar and the high priest to atone for their sins. And suddenly you become convinced that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and that you don't have to go to the temple anymore because Jesus is our temple. You don't have to go forgive your sins anymore in the temple because it's already been done for you on the cross. Imagine you start to believe that, but you still live in Jerusalem, right? Like when Christians in ancient Jerusalem became Christians, they didn't move to some other place. They stayed where they were. And suddenly they are Christians and they're swimming in ceremonial foods, which we as Christians don't believe in. Altars, which we don't believe in, meaning a place you sacrifice to forgive your sins. A tabernacle, a place where God dwells, the high priest who goes into that tabernacle, or the most holy place where the high priest makes sacrifices in. We don't believe in this stuff. The ancient Christians are living and swimming in a culture filled with things that they actually don't believe in. And the question tonight is, when you live in a culture filled with things you don't believe in, when you live in a culture filled with strange teachings, when you live in a culture filled with things that you don't buy into, what do you do? And they're going to try to answer that question for us here in the next verse. When you live in a culture filled with things that you don't buy into, that you're not comfortable with, what do you do? Here's how they answer it. Verse 14 says, For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. He says, For here, and I'm convinced they're talking about Jerusalem. 
that this city, this amazing, beautiful city filled with all of the symbolism of the old covenant, we don't have an enduring city, but rather we're looking for a city that is to come. Uh, let me show you the New Living Translation, which, which is kind of a translation, kind of a paraphrase. It's just trying to give you the idea behind the text here. It's the same verse, but this is the NLT version. It says, this world, in other words, the city, is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home that is yet to come. That's the purpose. So here's the question. If you are living in a culture filled with things you don't agree with, if you are living in a culture, in a world, in a nation, filled with things that are going on that you just don't feel comfortable with, you don't feel like you fit into, what do you do? And I think the first thing you need to do is recognize this, that followers of Jesus should not feel at home in this world. I'll say that again in case you need to hear this. Child of God, follower of Jesus, you should not feel at home in this world. You shouldn't. You shouldn't feel at home in this world. This world should not feel perfectly comfortable to you. What do I mean by that? You should not feel at home in this world with the value systems of this world. You know what the value systems are? You don't have to be smart to know the value systems. All you have to do is watch cable television for 10 minutes. You'll know the value system. What's every commercial ever built on? It's either trying to sell you something through money, sex, or power, right? Like if you go watch every commercial you've ever seen, that's what they're trying to sell you on because that's the values of our world. It's money, it's sex, it's power. What gets valued in this world? Being strong, being dominant, dunking on someone on Twitter, destroying someone in a debate, looking stronger, looking better, dressing better. That's the value system of this world. And as a child of God, it should make you uncomfortable. You should go like, I don't quite fit into that. That's not quite me. So you shouldn't fit into the value systems of this world. Hear me on this. You should not fit into the political systems of this world. If you have just drunk the Kool-Aid on one party or the other, like, like it is just so obscene to me that you would buy so deeply into a political party. Not to say I prefer it over the other or I strongly believe that this party will lead us in a better direction. That's fine. But if you're like 100% of my beliefs always line up with the politician on this or that side, this or that team, the blue team or the red team, man, there's something about politics that's driving your faith rather than the other way around. Like you should have a discomfort even if you choose one side or the other, there should be a discomfort saying, this doesn't perfectly align with the kingdom of God. Next, you should be uncomfortable. You should not feel at home with the entertainment of this world. I've talked about this before. There are just TV shows and movies and music that you listen to. And sometimes you should be listening to it. And my concern for some of you is that there's never a line. There's never a moment where you go, actually, as a believer and a child of God, as a disciple of Christ, I just don't think I can listen to this anymore. I don't think I can watch this show anymore. And hear me, again, I'm never going to draw that line for you. I just need to know that you have one. I need to know that somewhere your conscience gets pricked and you don't get so comfortable with the entertainment of this world that you start giving into sin without even realizing it. Like just the other night, my wife and I were watching a show and it was hilarious. It was so fun. We were about eight, nine episodes into this new show. We're watching it. It was a blast. Um, and, and then we recommended that it would be fun for someone else to watch the show. And, and that someone else was um, her mother. Um, and, and so we recommended that she would. And, and, and the feedback came back from someone like, hey, maybe you, you shouldn't do that. And we're like, okay, well, why is that? And they're like, well, that show is, is pretty full of swear words, like bad words, and she's not going to like that. And, and here's what I have to confess to you. I'm just going to confess this before. I didn't even realize it. 
I was actually surprised at this show because everything else about it was so like clean and fun and easy and like going. It didn't feel like one of those shows that was really bad. And yet I'd just become so desensitized to it that I didn't even realize that it was filled with language that I never want to use. And frankly, I don't want to put into my brain. And so here's the danger. I started to become comfortable with the entertainment of this world. Like there's something that should turn my heart to just at least recognize that's not the values I hold. The next thing is this. You don't want to become comfortable with the pain and suffering of this world. I think somewhere along the way, Christians start to believe that God has a reason for pain and suffering, and therefore you should be okay with the pain and the suffering. That's not your call. The call is not like, you know that God has a reason, and therefore when you see kids suffer, and you see people get cancer, and when you see hard things happen in this world, you should just kind of be zen and at peace with it. It should rip your heart apart. In fact, I heard about something today. I got texted by another pastor about a situation that was going on um, right here in our community with someone who was hurting, and my response was, Jesus, come quickly. End this all. Because there are days where I see the real depth of human suffering, and I just want Jesus to crack the sky and end all of it. I want him to come home because I'm so sick of seeing people suffer. Like, that should happen for us. We shouldn't get comfortable with the fact that there's cancer and pain and death and divorce and heartache and abuse and rape. We should not get comfortable with it. There should be a part of us that's always uncomfortable with the pain and suffering in this world. And then finally, um, we want to be discomforted by the futility of this world. You ever notice how futile this world is sometimes? When I say futile, here's what I mean. Um, You do something great, but then you have to do it again. You ever notice you clean your kitchen? You get it, like, nice and clean. It smells nice. It looks nice. You ever notice the next day it's filthy again? You ever done something great at work and you're like, I'm so proud of myself. I rocked that project. You get in the next Monday, they're like, all right, get it out again. You're like, again? This is the futility of this world. You feel like you did something well and you have to do it over again. You feel like you went on a good run or had a good workout session, but you know what you got to do? The same thing over and over and over again for the next eight decades. That's what you do. And at some point, we should start to not feel comfortable with the futility of this world. There should be something in us that says, this world is not my home. In fact, I want to present this to you tonight. The discomfort with with this world is an indication that you are homesick for heaven. When you are discomforted by this world, when you just go to strange teachings and the pain and all the things I see on TV and all the things I see in culture, all these things going on in this world, I don't love it, I don't want it. This is your homesickness for heaven. Because this world is not your home. You were created to be with God in heaven in a sinless paradise forever. And that's where you're heading someday. And so hear me, as Christians, we should have a discomfort with this world. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we should hate this world. I'm just saying there should be a discomfort that says I want to get home. Like I'll put it this way. Last week, I was on a trip. Uh, and me and a few guys, we go on this trip and, and we got ourselves a hotel room. Um, and hotel rooms, I love hotel rooms. I don't know about you. Maybe you hate hotel rooms. But hotel rooms are great because it's like, okay, here's a nice bed and a cool shower. And then someone comes in every day and they clean up for you and they make your bed. It's the best, right? And you're in a hotel room. But here's my question. You ever been on a vacation for like a few days? And you're like, this is the greatest. But then after a few more days, you start to go like, yeah, this bed's nice. But you know where I want to go? I want to go back to my bed. The shower's nice and it's fine. And like, I finally learned, you know, the first time you do a shower, you're like, oh, you know, like that type, like, like this shower is cool, but like, I want to go back to my shower. See, ultimately, isn't it weird that we go on amazing vacations and then we say there's no place like home? And here's what I want to suggest to you. 
There are beautiful, good, stunning things about this world, good gifts that God has given to us. There are days where I see a sunset, have a nice meal with someone, enjoy a wonderful experience with someone, and just go, this is so wonderful. And yet at the end of it, there is this homesickness for heaven where I can enjoy this world, but I can also declare it's not my home. My eternity is with Christ. I will be with him forever. And all the things that make me uncomfortable about this world will be no more because I'm homesick for heaven. And I think some of you are too. I think sometimes you watch the news. Sometimes you hear what's going on. Sometimes you look around this world and you realize that this can't be all there is. And the good news is, this isn't all there is. There's a heaven awaiting for us. I want to go on to verse 15 where it says this. It says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And let us not forget to do good and share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. I always love pointing to this word, therefore, in Scripture. Every time you see therefore, you're always thinking, what is it there for? Like, what's right before it? So it was just talking to us about, like, we shouldn't be settled with uh, this world. We're homesick for heaven. This isn't our home. So here's the question, really practically. When you feel homesick for heaven, when you feel like this world is not your home, when you feel uncomfortable with our culture, uncomfortable with our media, uncomfortable with what you see on the news, uncomfortable with life and how futile and frustrating and suffering it can be, what do you do? And here's the answer it's going to give us. Therefore, let's continually offer a sacrifice of praise. And then what are we going to do? We're not going to forget to do good and share with others. When you feel homesick for heaven, when you feel sick of this world and sick and tired of what you see on the news and sick and tired of what you have to deal with and over all of the things and you're homesick for heaven, even if you don't know how to articulate that, what's it going to tell you to do? It's going to tell you to worship and it's going to tell you to serve people. Because here's what's true, and you know this. You will never feel closer to heaven than when you are worshiping God and serving others. You'll never feel closer to heaven. Like, like that's the closest you're going to experience and feel and know what it means to be in heaven when you are worshiping God and serving others. So, so if you're not bought into this, let me convince you of this. Um, raise your hand, whether it was at this church or some other church, if as a kid you ever went, kid, teenager, you ever went to summer camp. Summer camp, winter camp, mission trip, some kind of trip you through church. Okay, most of you. Um, You'll all remember how you came home from that trip, likely, um, unless you did a lot of bad things on that trip and got sent home early. Um, but you'll, you'll <laughs> which was some of you. Um, okay, here, neither here nor there. Okay, moving forward. All right, um, but, but, but you'll remember you came home from that trip. You get home from that trip and you start to feel that thing and it's universally described. It's not a California thing. It's not an evangelical church thing. It's an everyone thing. People talk about the camp high, right? They talk about the camp high. This is how I felt. I came home from camp and I just felt so close to God. It was absolutely amazing. And it's always treated like an absolute mystery. And I've been convinced for the 15 years I've worked with high school students at this church and others that it is the farthest thing from a mystery. Because you ask a kid who comes home from camp or comes home from from a mission trip or comes home from some experience where they were intensely involved with ministry or church stuff. And you ask them, okay, what'd you do all week? Well, I got up every morning and I worshiped God and I spent time in the word and I prayed and I hung out with other believers and I served them and I loved them and I broke free of all the sinful patterns in my life that weren't really good for me in the first place and I started to learn how to love and serve and use my spiritual gifts and it's such a mystery. I feel close to God. <laughs> like thousands of high school students have basically said that to me and like there is no mystery. When you are worshiping, when you are serving, There's nothing in your life that will make you closer to heaven. Why? Because heaven is a place where God 
is worshiped. And hear me on this. Heaven is a place where Jesus is at the center. And if you want to understand who Jesus is, Jesus is the one who served others, who didn't come to serve or be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You want to feel close to heaven? If you're sick of the way you feel around this world, if you're sick of the way you look around this world and see all the gross stuff happening in our nation, in our culture, in our world, and you're over it, here's the response. It's not to complain. It's not to grumble. It's not to be mad. It's not to get bitter. It's not to post some tirade on social media about how angry you are at the world. It's to worship God and it's to serve others because you'll never be closer to heaven than when you do exactly that. Here's how it goes on in verse 17. He's gonna shift gears a little bit. Um, He says this, he says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. So we're gonna talk about Hebrews 13, 7, uh, 17. And um, I wanna recognize from the outset how unbelievably uncomfortable it is when church leaders stand up and teach on how you're supposed to submit to church leaders, right? Like it's like me up here being like, all right, you people, listen up, right? Like, like there's like an air of like, okay, like do I do this or do I just kind of like blow past this verse and be like, study it on your own? Like, but, but here's why we're gonna talk about it tonight. We're gonna talk about this verse for at least three reasons about what it means to submit to your leaders, what it means to have confidence in them, to submit to their authority, that they have authority. I wanna talk about that looks like for three reasons tonight. Number one, there are many of you in this room right now or listening online who do not go to this church. Listen, we get this. We're not like mad about this. We're not upset about it. There are some of you who go to another church. You love your other church. You just come here on Thursday night and it blesses you and praise the Lord for that. But here's the truth. I wanna teach tonight on what it means to submit to the authority of the leaders in your church because I believe your church needs you to do that. Here's the second reason I'll talk about it. There are some of you who love this church and go to this church and you're part of this church, but 10 years from now you won't be because you'll grow up and you'll get married and move away or you'll get a job and they'll move you somewhere else in the country or somewhere else in the world. And I hope you go there and find a church and I want you to think about what it means to submit to that church's leadership because that church needs you to submit to their leadership too. But then here's the final reason I'm gonna teach right through this, even though it's a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit awkward possibly. Because everything taught in the Bible is for your good. It's for my good. There's nothing in the Bible that's just like thrown in there randomly. It is given to us for God's glory and for our good. And so I wanna talk about church leadership tonight. And here's my hope. My hope is that you walk away a more devoted follower of Jesus because of it. So I want to look at this. I want to look at this text. I want to look at the sentences that are going to follow. And here's what it says. Have confidence in your leaders. Now you'll see these words. Submit to their authority. And here's what I've learned as a preacher. There are a handful of words in the Bible that cause people to like clench their fists, become angry, sort of get all tensed up. Submit is one of them. There are a few other ones, like tithe is one of those two, but we won't get on that tonight. Submit, okay? I want to talk about this word submission. Submission is not an optional word for the follower of Jesus. Submission is not something you can be like, I don't like all that Bible talk about submission, so I just don't buy into it. Like submission's not just here, it's all over the Bible. People submit to one another. Every Christian is called to submit to someone else. Submission is not an optional part of the Christian life. It is an essential part of the Christian life. But I wanna clear the air a little because I think submission can be so misunderstood. So let me give you four things submission is not, okay? Let me just clear this out of the way. Number one, submission is never coerced. Some of you hear submission and you think wrestling match. So you think like church leader takes you in a headlock and goes, submit. And you're like, all right. That's not submission. 
It's not what the Bible's talking about. Actually, when the Bible talks about submission, here's what it talks about. It's not being wrestled under. It's you choosing voluntarily to go under something or someone. It's never coerced. It's always optional. It's always a choice. All throughout the entire scripture, it is choose to do this. Submission is never something you are wrestled under. It is something you submit. You choose to come under. Submission is never coerced. Here's the next thing. Submission does not forbid disagreement. Submission to church leadership does not mean you never disagree with us. It doesn't mean you never have to think a different thought. It never means if I get up here and say something, you're like, well, I don't like that. Oh, am I not in submission? No, submission does not forbid disagreement. And then hear me on this. Submission does not forbid discussion. You disagree with something. You bring it up in a respectful, thoughtful, kind, but firm way. Here's what you're doing. Here's what I think you should be doing. Here's what you said. Here's what I think you should have said. Submission does not mean you just have to buy in wholesale to whatever the church leadership says. Submission is voluntary. You can disagree, you can discuss. And then finally, submission does not permit abuse. And if you have ever been in a relationship, whether it is a romantic relationship, a boss-employee relationship, or some kind of church relationship where the word submission has been used as justification for abuse, I am so sorry. That is condemnable theology that belongs in hell itself. There is no place for abuse in the church and there is no place for the word submission to be used as license for you to be harmed in any way by a church leader for any reason. See, this isn't what submission is. It's not coerced. It's not you just agreeing because the church leader pastor said it, so we have to agree. And it does not permit abuse. So what is submission? Let me give you a definition, not that I came up with. But let me actually give you what the text says. I want to go back to Hebrews 13, 7. You'll see it right here in the next slide. It says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. And in order to understand what it means to submit to the authority of church leaders, I want you to look at these two words. It says, have confidence. Now, this is in the NIV, the New International Version. Um, Some versions are going to say, obey your leaders. There's going to be different ways of saying this. But the word here um, for have confidence is, of course, a Greek word, which the entire New Testament was built in. The entire New Testament was written in. I want to show you the definition of this Greek word here. It's the Greek word pitho. Now, sometimes I bring up Greek words, and, and, and here's the truth. I studied Greek in undergraduate. I studied it in grad school, and so I have a grasp of the language. But I also want you to know everything on this slide was copy and pasted from Bible.org. And if you have a smartphone and can type B-I-B-L-E dot O-R-G, you can also get this. There's no like special access pastors get where I'm like, yes, I have the pass. Like, that's not me. Here's where I get it from. Greek, pitho. Here's what have confidence means. It means to persuade, or, or, or the, 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 the passive tense is be persuaded. To induce by words to believe, to make friends, to win one's favor, to gain one's goodwill, or to seek one's, to seek to win one. Do you see how that's not this? That's not I'm the leader and you should submit to me and do what I want. The type of submission that the Bible is calling you toward is this type of submission where you are persuaded, where someone induces you, their words, they win you over to their side through goodwill. That's the type of submission that's being described here in this text. When it says submit to your leaders, this is what it's talking about. Uh, Author, pastor, theologian, uh, John Piper says it this way. And I think it's a really helpful um, helpful way of putting it. You'll see it up on the screen. It says this, the word obey, and again, in other translations, be persuaded, says obey, is a very broad word, the word pitho, that means to be persuaded by, to trust or rely on. It comes to mean obey because that's what you do when you trust someone. 
That's an interesting thought to chew on. So you might say that it's a soft word for obey. It encourages a good relationship of trust, but still calls for the people to be swayed by leaders. So be a swayable person. Be a person who's ready to learn, ready to be taught, ready to be led, not eager to kick and rebel against anyone that calls you to do something at church. That's the purpose. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. So so let me be really clear with you on this. Um, Submission to church leadership does not mean agreeing with everything leadership says. And for some of you, that's so freeing because in this last year, you've not agreed with stuff we've said. And you know what that is? 100% okay. It's okay to not agree. It's okay to not buy in. It's okay to say, you know what? I'm not sure. I'm on the same page as leadership there. Listen, submission to leadership does not mean agreeing with everything leadership says. Submission to leadership means being a person who is willing to be swayed. You're willing to be swayed, you're willing to be convinced. You're not just coming into church every week just going like, well, whatever he says, I'm just going to shake my head and say no. Like, like, don't be the type of person who's just completely unwilling to be led or swayed or convinced of anything. Well, what does this mean practically? Let me give you four practical um, examples. Number one, that you would be willing to be swayed in your theology and your doctrine. Here's what I know. I get on the stage all the time and I say things that are hard to hear. Um, And sometimes I might say things that theologically you've never thought of before, theologically you don't like, or theologically that's not the church you grew up in. And being a person who's submissive, who's willing to be taught, willing to be swayed, doesn't mean you just say, well, Pastor Brian says it, therefore I believe it, that settles it. I wish you would, but you won't. And this isn't how it should be. Here's what you should do. There should be this like, I have never heard that before, but let me listen, let me think about this, let me be swayed. And maybe you'll ultimately disagree, but you're ultimately willing to be swayed in your theology and your doctrine, that you'd be willing to be displayed in your discipleship and your spiritual formation. So when we get up here week after week and say, join a small group, open your Bible, pray regularly, go on a mission trip, when we start talking about these things you can do to become more like Jesus, to be submissive is to be the type of person who goes, okay, I'm willing to be coached on that. And if I get up here and say, hey, you should really think about the music you're listening to and whether it's honoring the Lord, if your first thought is, you don't don't get to tell me what music I listen to, that's not this. It's being willing to be swayed. It's thinking, okay, maybe this actually does have an effect on my spiritual formation. The next one is willing to be swayed on church methods and models. Do do you know that almost all the fighting that's happened in churches over the last year has really just happened over methods and models? It's really just happened on like, okay, we're going to meet outside versus inside, online versus on campus, social distancing, masks. Like all those things are not like message questions. That's not a fight about the gospel. That's just a fight about like how should church function? Where should we meet? What's the model for how we do it? And to be a person who submits to church leadership is to be a person who's willing to be convinced, who doesn't just say, well, I've never done it that way, or I don't believe in that, or I don't like that, but who's willing to be convinced, willing to be swayed. And then finally, willing to be swayed by vision and direction that ultimately pastors and church leaders are going to get up and say, hey, we're going this direction. We're going to focus on this thing as a church. The money we get as a church is going to go toward this project or this thing. It's a vision question, a direction question. And to be submissive to church leadership doesn't mean you always agree with it. It just means you're willing to be convinced. Like, here's my question. And given all that I just said, here's the question I just want you to wrestle with. Are you willing to let anyone lead you? Does anyone get to lead you? Does anyone get to tell you what to do? Does anyone get to influence you? Does anyone get to say hard things straight to your face and then you actually go change your life in reaction to that? Because my fear for some of you, and I don't think it's all of you, but I think my fear for some of you, you've just kind of bought into this idea that no one gets to tell you what to do. You're the captain of your own ship. You're the master of your own destiny. No one tells you what to do. You've got this thing and everyone else can go take a hike. 
And here's what I need you to know, that the person who's not willing to let anyone in their church lead them needs to go find a new church. If for some reason, no person, whether it's me or Pastor Brian Williams or someone else we have preaching, your small group leader, if no one up here can lead you or push you in any direction, then there has been a trust that's been broken where you need to go find a place where you can submit to that kind of leadership. Because listen, submission to leadership, being persuaded, having confidence in your leaders is not some optional part of the Christian faith. It's right at the core of it. Here's the final, um, here's the final text we'll look at in verse 17, the back half. It says to have confidence in your leaders, submit to their leadership. And then here's what it says, because they keep watch over those of you who must give, as those who must give an account. Like that's a fascinating part of it, that I will give an account someday for your souls and your life and your spiritual development before God. Like what's going on in your life will somehow be a burden I carry before the throne room. But then it says this, and do this so that their work will be a joy, a joy not a burden, which would be no benefit to you. Uh, like again, um, this sounds self-serving, but for those of you who don't go to this church, won't go to this church, or for those of you that do, um, when you make the lives of ministry leaders and pastors miserable, they serve you less well. When you make Brian Williams' life miserable, which I don't know why you would. He's the nicest guy who's ever lived, okay? I'm not. I know that. He is the nicest guy who's ever lived. But if you make his life miserable, he'll serve you worse. And so it's no benefit to you. But, but, but here's the thing. It's going to say that these are the ones who keep watch over your soul. I love this word, keep watch. Can we put this up on the screen? This word in Greek is abgrupneo. And you know what it means to keep watch? It means to be sleepless, to be awake, to be watching. You're the person who has the watch in the middle of the night. Like, hey, you, we're all going to go to sleep, but you stay up and watch. And you know what I love about this image? It's calling us to do this. It's calling us to submit to leaders who you believe would lose sleep over your well-being. And that's a question for you. Whether you go to this church, whether you go to some other church someday, whether you go to some other church now, here's the question. Do you believe that your leaders lose sleep over you? Do you believe that your leaders think about you, pray for you, sacrifice to you? Do you believe that your leaders are willing to get up on a stage and say things that make you uncomfortable for your good? Do you believe that your leaders will lose sleep over your soul and your life and your salvation? See, that's what we're called to as believers, as Christians. See, submission is not getting wrestled down. It's choosing to put ourselves under the type of leaders who we believe would lose sleep over our lives because that's the call of God on their lives and that's the call of God on us. So here's how I want to close. Um, I know I'm talking about church leadership and all of these strange things and maybe you're kind of thinking, okay, beginning of the sermon was kind of like, here's all the strange teachings in the world that we're uncomfortable with and we don't necessarily align with. And then you kind of went into this whole thing on church leadership. So how do these things fit together? Uh, and here's how I want to fit these two things together. I believe that the rejection about any authority outside of yourself is the strange teaching that you must be most aware of in our age. I'll say that again, the belief that there's no authority outside of yourself. No one can lead you. No one can tell you what to do. No one has any authority. It's my life. It's my direction. It's my choice. No one tells me what to do. This is the strange teaching over the last 200 years in Western culture that you must be aware of. Because if you are not careful, you will breathe it in like oxygen. It is everywhere in this world. The idea that you get to decide your life and no one gets to speak into you. Get away from me. It's not your business. You don't know me. That is the belief that floats around in this world, and you have to be aware of it. Why do you need to be aware of it? Because listen to me, the person who rejects all authority outside of themselves is caught up in the suffocating grip of self-idolatry. 
The person who says, no one gets to lead me, no one gets to speak into my life, it's my authority, my choice, no one gets to tell me what to believe or say or do, you are caught up in the idolatry of the greatest authority in your life, and when the greatest authority in your life is you, it is self-idolatry. You're worshiping yourself because you believe you are the greatest authority in the entire universe. And here's what all of us know. Idolatry is misery. Whenever you worship something or someone, including yourself, other than the God of the universe, it never makes you happy. It never makes you peaceful. It never brings you joy. It never brings you anything. And so I'm pleading with you tonight to reject strange teachings of every kind, but especially the strange teaching that says, I can do this thing without God. I can do this thing without leadership. I don't need anyone or anyone else because ultimately you become your own God. And hear me. Every single Thursday night, we get into this room to declare that we are not God, but there is someone who is. He is the God of heaven and earth. He is the Lord of all things. He is Jesus Christ enthroned on high. He is the creator of all things, sustainer of all things. We come into this room to worship God, to fight against that self-idolatry, that suffocating grip of the idea that we're the center of the universe. So here's what we're going to do as we close. We're going to do the same thing we always do, and we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And as we stand and as we sing, I want you to think about the fact that the thing that permeates our age is the strange teaching that there is no authority outside of yourself. You are the ultimate authority in this world. And I want you to combat that. I want you to fight that by worshiping and singing tonight. Well, we're going to sing a song we've sung before here many times called Came to My Rescue. The words of this song go like this. It says, falling on my knees in worship, giving all I have to seek your face. Lord, all I am is yours. Those words... Say there's an authority outside of your life. There's someone who owns you. There's someone who's in charge of you. And that someone is God. Your life is not your own. It was bought with a price. God, all I am is yours. Here are the next words. It says, my whole life I place in your hands. Like it's not my life. It's my life, but I'm giving it up to you. It's your life now, God. You do whatever you want to do with it. I pull, God of mercy, humbled, I bow down. In your presence, at your throne, humble myself before you, God. And then the chorus of the song goes this way. It says, I called, you answered. I, I called out because I'm not self-sufficient. I called out because I can't do this on my own. I called out because you're God and I'm not. I always try to act like God, but I'm not actually that good at being God. So I need you to call. I'm going to call out to you and you're going to answer. And you came to my rescue. You saved me from sin. You saved me from death. You saved me from hell. But hear me tonight. You saved me from myself. Because I thought I had this thing on my own, but I called and you answered. I want to be where you are, God. That's where I want to be. I don't want to be where I want to be. I want to be where you are. I want to be in your presence. And then the bridge, you've sung it before, says this word. In my life, be lifted high. Whatever my life is, I want you to be higher, God. In our world, whatever is important, whatever strange teachings float around in this world, God, you be lifted high above that. And in our love, the love that binds us together as a church, may the most significant thing in this church be the glory of God and the praise of his glorious grace. This is what we sing about. This is how we fight self-idolatry. This is how we fight the suffocating, strange teaching that you are the center of all things and the center of this universe. So here's what I want you to do. Would you stand to your feet right now? Stand to your feet. I wanna pray over this room. And after I say amen, I want us to sing and I want us to sing with the kind of soul that says, God, I'm so into myself. I'm so wrapped up in myself. And yet, God, I just don't wanna live that way anymore. I don't wanna be an idolater of myself. I'm gonna be a worshiper of you. Let's pray and sing like we actually believe that. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for whatever challenge, whatever thing your Holy Spirit is doing in our heart. God, I just never want to be the person who's wrapped up in me. 
I'm too small, I'm too insignificant, I'm too nothing compared to your glory and your greatness and your wonder. God, help us worship tonight as if you are the God of the universe and we are not. And yet help us remember that you, the God of the universe, stooped down to love sinners like us. Help us worship with that kind of reckless abandon. We want to be where you are tonight, Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said real loud, 